Hello, welcome again to Sports Unlock, bringing you all the week's sports news. As ever, if you hit subscribe, we land in your feed automatically and you can message us on all social media at Sports Unlocked, including X. What's that, Rob? The new name for Twitter. What a week it's been. Well, joining me, Rob Harris from Sky News, is Tarek Panji, who you heard there from the New York Times, and Martin Ziegler from the Times. Tarek, you're still out at the Women's World Cup. How are things as you've moved on to Brisbane? Yeah, um, tournament's still um, rumbling on. Big shock result, uh, time of recording last night here in Brisbane. Australia, still without the star striker, Sam Kerr, losing uh, in front of a packed house to Nigeria, 3-2, massive shock result. Uh, and it risks the the host, or at least one of the one of the hosts, being eliminated. Everyone thought it was going to be New Zealand. How's the atmosphere then felt at the tournament, particularly compared to France 2019? Yeah, it's, it's a good question. That When it's um, Australia, for example, the, this game in Brisbane against Nigeria, the entire day had that big match feel, people flying in from all parts of Australia, um, from from Sydney, from Melbourne, from other all, all over Cairns, all over the place for the game. All people wearing their shirts, um, and and a good atmosphere in the stadium. So that in, on that score, it's been really good. And also, I think attendances have been generally quite high in in Australia. New Zealand, I think, is struggling a bit. We're talking to colleagues there, and particularly in the southern southern cities, Dunedin, for example, it's been really hard to get a crowd in, and it's just a, two different World Cups, it seems. Well, get into a bit more of the Women's World Cup in a bit. Uh, Martin, how's your week been? Yeah, quite interesting. Met Professor James Calder, who um, people, sort of from a news point of view, he, he was in the news a couple of years ago because he was the, the, the chairman of the committee which was in charge of the return of sport from the COVID pandemic. But he's also a, a top orthopaedic surgeon. Talked to him about um, operating on Johnny Bairstow's ankle. Um, but he's also... Um, among his patients, and I think he was flown out to Qatar to operate on Neymar in March. And uh, he has also done, um, treated in the past, Michael Jackson and Daniel Craig. So, yeah, he's got a, a list of stars at his door. But, yeah, very interesting speaking to him. You've had a recent buttock problem yourself, Siegs, with the, with the muscle there in your glute. Did you have a chat with him about that? Uh, wrong part of the body, um, but anyway, I'm glad glad to report that the, the the gluteus is back to maximus. For me, I was at the Ashes, and really, what a disappointing way to settle any sporting contest. For those not fully following, because of rain, all day on the fifth and final day of the fourth test between England and Australia, it meant England couldn't do enough to complete what surely would have been a victory, it would have levelled the series and they would have gone into the fifth test as a decider. But instead, such as the oddity, one of these quirks of cricket, even if it's a tool draw to end the series from the fifth deciding test, it would be Australia who do retain the Ashes urn. So, yeah, pretty disappointing way. And the debate is over. Why not build in some extra days, rest days, um, potentially reserve days to be able to complete the test if there is rain and hoping it will be dry. Yeah, the ECB chairman Richard Thompson referred to that, didn't he, this week? He he says that there needs to be a conversation about reserve days um, with the International Cricket Council. I suppose that the, 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 it's a bit like football, isn't it? The, the cricket fixture calendar is already really rammed. Um, there's not, you know, you know, we finished on. Sunday they're back playing again in the in the Oval 
um, a few days later, weren't they, on, on the, the Thursday. So there's not much space, is there, in it, for all those reserve days, but it's already five days. These ashes have also had to take place in a narrower time frame than, than in the past already, right? Because of the short... In the, in the uh, not that long ago, the teams would come and have some warm-up games, for example, and even between tests would play against um, counties as well. They'd be here for longer to play the the Ashes series, but now it's been been sort of squeezed into this this ti- ever tiny window. So there is very little room. You're mentioning, you know, um, short form of cricket and, and other things. Where, where would these rest days go? And so it's that pressure of of new cricket, isn't it? It is, particularly when the ECB is pushing the hundred as this new competition. It wants to have that August window for and. You have to have three days between test matches. So they've secured the absolute minimum between the fourth and fifth tests. And they did have a reserve day when the World Test Championships were held in England at Lords. What was that in June? And Australia won that event. But the thing is, if you have reserve days, you also have to reserve security, catering staff. So there's additional costs. So actually, your profit margins come into this as well. So you're thinking, actually, do you want to add those reserve days? and maximise the chance of victory or keep it at five days. But one thing at the back of the mind always was, if it worked in England's favour, there wouldn't quite be this outrage and debate. No, that's true. And the other thing is, actually, especially the way England are playing at the moment, it's very unusual for it to go to a fifth day anyway. So you can actually say the fifth day is a reserve day effectively. So, um, I th- and but you're right. Once once money comes into it, I think uh, <laughs> I think that's the end of the conversation. Funny, funny. You should say uh, if if the shoe had been on the other foot, Rob. For here in Australia, the, the newspapers aren't having any of that. I mean, the, the Australian, for example, on the front page, w- w- the headline was "Whinge in the Willows." England spins sob story as wet as Old Trafford outfield. That was one of the headlines, and another one in the Courier. Dear Ben, you lost! Exclamation mark. That was it. They're, they're not having any of this here. I think, as we discussed after there was controversy early on in the series about a taking of a wicket, it's good that cricket actually has these debating points. It gets itself on the front pages. We're talking about it on here, particularly if hopefully non-cricket followers listening are actually engaged with the fact that there's a wider discussion. It just gives that little bit of extra edge. Yeah, I think that's what it needs, actually. Um, I was just thinking, in, in terms of um, being a sort of spectator sport and driving interest, speaking personally, I mean, I've, I've always quite liked cricket, but I don't think I've been gripped by a series before like I have been by this one. So I think it must be doing something right. It's about how much time you have as well. Obviously, we're sort of seeing it now with the Women's World Cup, another tournament where there's back-to-back-to-back matches. You can be sitting for hours watching games for cricket. It requires a five-day commitment for a test match. It's a lot of viewing. The Open Golf Championship as well was last weekend. Uh, How are they finding Australia with lots of games to watch? Well, yeah, you you might be watching them back-to-back in in, in the UK, Rob, with it being free-to-air on the BBC and ITV, but... One of the um, criticisms here, and I, asking people in, in Brisbane before the game against Nigeria, and this was a, a universal criticism, that the games in Australia are not free-to-air. Um, Channel 7 is the free-to-air broadcaster, but has only 15 of the games, so has all the Australia games, and we'll have the knockout games, some of the knockout games, and the final. The rest of them are behind a paywall on, on, the, on the Optus network, 
and, and that's that's led to some consternation and some upset here, where with with both local organising the way, but also with FIFA, you know, whose state admission is is to grow women's football, and um, games like the Netherlands and the United States, incredible game actually that one, in in, in the group stage finished in a draw. Um, was not available unless you've got a subscription. Uh, I'm not sure what you guys think of that um, over there. Well, I mean, I think it's a very short-sighted move, really, because especially for the Women's World Cup, and the whole idea about it is trying to grow the game, isn't it? I mean, I don't think you're particularly necessarily trying to, if it was the Men's World Cup, trying to grow the game, but certainly the women's, the organisers and FIFA everybody should be bending over backwards to make sure it's available to watch in the host country by as many people as possible. Obviously, in Australia, Optus have the rights. They are the broadcaster, the pay TV broadcaster. That puts that year-round commitment into showing things like the Premier League. And in terms of the actual costs, it is seven Australian dollars a month to be able to watch uh, the sports packages if you're already an Optus customer. That's just under five US dollars a month, but it goes up to uh, a bit more, $25 almost Australian dollars a month if you're not an existing Optus customer to be able to watch the uh, the Women's World Cup. Yeah, I don't think it's an issue in a way about, in a big, in, in a meaningful sense about the, the, the cost. It's just if you're a casual viewer or someone who's just, you're trying to grow an audience, not an existing football fan or someone who is very casual. It's about converting people to the sport. Now, filling up a registration, buying a subscription isn't something that, I don't know, someone who's just past flicking the channels is likely to do. I spoke to a, a chap in the in a fan zone yesterday. He's wearing a Brisbane Broncos rugby league uh, shirt. He was going to a Brisbane Broncos game, which curiously was in the same city at exactly the same time as as the Women's World Cup game uh, between Australia and Nigeria. And he said, no, absolutely no chance. He, he's got three or four other sports um, TV subscriptions. It's not something he'd be bothered, he's not that into, but he was enjoying the World Cup um, when he could see it. Well, as for the World Cup, a lot of issues surrounding it. We had the Zambia press conference where the FIFA media officer made a bit of an impression because they blocked questions initially about the sexual misconduct allegations facing Zambia's coach. Now, this has been something that's been running for some months, these allegations, since they first emerged. And Bruce Mwape, who is the Zambia coach, is still coaching the team at their first World Cup. They were playing a game against Spain the next day, and Spanish reporters were trying to use this opportunity to ask him about it. And then we had the intervention from the... um, FIFA press officer basically saying stick questions to football. They did ask another question to Spanish media, which was allowed. It was around whether or not it's effectively a distraction. Then he did answer to call the allegations um, you know, wrong. But then Zambia's press officer cut questions off when further questions came into play. So a coach accused of sexual misconduct coaching at the Women's World Cup and attempts to block questions. Well, I mean, I think the fact that they uh, answered some of them was um, pr- uh, that was something at least. I mean, it, the, the whole situation is strange. It would certainly, uh, I, I can see a, a similar situation happening in, in the UK. If somebody was a, under a cloud of suspicion about something, they would they would refuse to take any questions whatsoever and just not answer it. So, 
um, I suppose at least they, there was some sort of denial. But the, I mean, the whole situation is a very strange one. But it, it actually, it, it should be taking place. There, there was another kind of media brouhaha this week, uh, early in the week before uh, the Australia's second game. Obviously, the nation is concerned about the fate of Sam Kerr, the star striker's calf. Uh, she was ruled out before the first game and then missed the second game. And now with Canada, almost vital she plays. But anyway, before before the game, there was a presser with a player and um, the, the player had said um, that she'd torn her calf. And obviously that that is a big, big thing to say. It was on the record in a press conference and suddenly there's all manner of scrambling from the Australian press department trying to get the press not to write that, saying she's inexperienced, she doesn't really know what the right language is, can you not write the story? And, and you know, in an open press conference, someone said something, you can reflect both things, because at the moment, while there's still that uncertainty, Sam Kerr hasn't played a single minute or looked like playing a single minute at the World Cup. It, it, chances are she won't. That that felt like a news story. But what would you guys have done? Just saying, look, she said it, we're not going to write it. I suppose when it's about injuries and health, it's a, it's a perhaps a different equation. I think you reflect both sides of it. They said that... You know, this person said she'd torn her calf muscle. The Australian media department say that's not the case. And But yeah. there is uh, you know, <laughs> clearly something has happened. I suppose there's a difference between a pulled muscle and a torn muscle. Um, that's that Exactly. Difference. So one person who is not at the Women's World Cup is a figure we perhaps expected would have been there throughout, but hasn't actually been to a game since Monday. FIFA president Gianni Infantino has left the Women's World Cup, having attended every game at the Men's World Cup in Qatar. He's um, left early to go on a tour of Oceania. Oh, interesting. And this was Gianni Infantino in his own words just a day before the tournament started last week, telling New Zealanders they had a duty to go to games. Which is the, which are um, New Zealand media there on the camera? No, no, on the cameras. So I watched that. New Zealand, we want you. We need you. It's never too late to do the right thing. Come to watch the matches. We need full stadiums to warm us all up. Huh? This is good also for the, for the girls who travel all the way to come here, that they are being supported. But not supported by Gianni Fantino in person for the entirety. Uh, Fatma Samora, the FIFA Secretary General, they're sitting next to Infantino at that opening press conference. So for now... No Gian Infantino at the World Cup at the time of recording. Do we know when he's going to return? No indication, but the thing is, he had spent a lot of this year talking about the need to show the Women's World Cup more respect, about equality, and calling out broadcasters in particular for not showing the Women's World Cup more respect with the rights they were offering. But there he is. He could go and visit, couldn't he, Oceania countries at any time on a private jet, but... He's skipped and he's not actually been to Australia yet to any games. He, he hasn't. He hadn't been to Australia before the tournament either. I mean, there was a sense that, you know, we, we saw the, the one of the England games, I think, in the World Cup in Qatar when his face appeared on the screen and, and there was the jeering. And I think Wales as well. There was a sense that parading him around an Australian crowd might elicit some of that same same reaction, Rob. Um, Rob, is he on holiday or has he gone to see the, the, the various federations? Do, do you know the, the, the nature of the trip? Well, he is at least being pictured in Fiji, pay, pay, making a visit to a federation. I mean, no suggestion he is on holiday in the past. 
particularly in the Mideast, he has combined holidays with official trips as well. There's another there was another thing I heard yesterday actually while while I was here talking to people. There was you know senior senior other senior FIFA officials aren't here either. Um there's very very few really compared to Qatar, which was a, a magnet for, for, for everyone um and their extended families, it seemed like. Um the, the, the FIFA delegation here is is much smaller, or the football family, as it were, inverted commas, is much smaller. And I heard, you know, there's a senior female official from the professional services side um, who who would normally be here was all over Qatar instead swapped swapped um, Australia and New Zealand for David uh, for Lionel Messi's debut in in Miami which ruffled a few feathers with some of her colleagues at FIFA so that's Ornella Belia she's the director of professional football at FIFA she was at the Inter Miami game obviously quite notable to be in the US, of course, because of the growth of football there. And it is the 2026 Men's World Cup host. But you say one of the key things on the brief of the professional football division in FIFA is growing the women's professional football side globally. You could, of course, say there is no need for these people to spend their entire time at a tournament like the Women's World Cup, and they should be going around the world. But what you would say is often when it's the Men's World Cup, we see these people there the whole time. That's true. And I do think it's amazing that Johnny Infantino hasn't been to Australia yet. I mean, that's just ridiculous. Um, and it, I mean, I would even go further to say it's a bit of a snub, I think, um, to the Australians, because if, you know, if he has, has time to go on trips to Oceania, but he's not even been to one of the co-hosts for, during the tournament, I just, I just think it's remarkable. Yeah, in Qatar, he said it was a privilege and pleasure to attend all the games in the group stage. So, and obviously went on to feature at the entire tournament by switching between games and distances did allow that. Well, you remember those helicopters as well over, over Qatar, over those games for, for some of the V, 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 I can't remember how many Vs there were in the end for the, for the top VIPs, but there were helicopters as, as well available to, to, to move around Qatar. Um, obviously this region is much bigger, um, but yeah, he attended every, every game. Well, while we're on the subject of football, we touched on it last week. So just an update on Jordan Henderson to Saudi Arabia. The Liverpool captain has now left Anfield. He has joined Al Etifak, linking up with his former Liverpool teammate, Steven Gerrard. And I think of all the transfers to Saudi Arabia, this is the one that has sparked the biggest backlash because of Henderson's own words. Um, obviously, any player is free to choose to go to Saudi Arabia, but probably none of the players who've moved there have actually occupied such a sort of moral high ground have they on issues like lgbtq rights and human rights uh, in particular no and i thought that significantly the, the picture of him wearing a rainbow armband um when when the saudi club published it they they did it in black and white so it was all it so it was gray you couldn't see the rain, rainbow armband i mean which i think speaks volumes and i think you thomas hitzelsberger who you've met in australia um Tarek, he, he was quite outspoken about it too i think he he said something like, yeah. Henderson's brand is dead. Well, no, he's not, he's not saying his brand is dead. He, it was like, he, he raised the, the, the question. I think it's a, it's a fair one. This is what he said. So Jordan Henderson finally gets his move to and it's the Saudi Arabian flag. Fair play to him. He can play wherever he wants to play. Curious to know, though, how the new brand JH will look like. The old one is, is dead. I did believe for a while that his support for, and it's a rainbow flag community, would be genuine. 
silly me. So what what he's basically saying is Jordan Henderson built his brand around being a a social, uh, I guess, a, an ambassador for the social cause that is the you know the LGBTQ community community. And now he's moved there, he's going to have to move on. And the idea that it was all just to build his own image and it wasn't sincere. And the thing is, doesn't that it worries you that if now this has happened, the next time players take a stand on any issue or whatever the cause is, will the public be thinking, well, hang on, does it do they really mean this or is it for to look good in order to get, you know, kudos and new sponsors and to, to get um, increase their own brand uh, brand value? Yeah, I just it is a, a sort of fairly easy thing to sort of um, promote yourself as being a sort of defender of human rights. <laughs> but you need to you need to walk the walk as well as talk the talk. Kylian Mbappe, that seemed to be um, more big news related to Saudi Arabia. That kept a few people busy this week. I, I think I was talking to you at the time that broke. Yeah, we had this 300 million euro bid from Al Hilal, didn't we, to Paris Saint-Germain. And it was a curious one because often when a bid comes in for a player, there's an expectation the player is encouraging it in some way. Then it's the sort of trigger for the next step of negotiations. But certainly... When that bid came into PSG, there was no indications. Mbappe actually does want to go to Saudi. And then they keep saying, actually, he doesn't with PSG, anticipating, expecting. He does want to go to Real Madrid, of course. He left on his PSG contract. So Saudi snubbed by the uh, man with the Qatari club. For now. He's one person who's already rich enough that he doesn't need to worry, um, even that the fabulous riches are on offer then. But um, I, I, what do you think about uh, the, the whole thing about Mbappe and his contract and his dealings? So Jonas Hoffman from FIFA Pro has been on this pod before. He uh, he made the point this week that it actually he's within his rights. To, he doesn't. Why why should he um, have to? sort of do a new deal or negotiate with PSG. He's done this contract. He's every right to see out the year. You know, that's what contracts are for. And yet PSG are trying to sort of, you know, suggest that this that somehow they're being hard done by. Yeah, I think that's right. I think, you know, it's, it's the terms of the contract are quite clear that he he can he can walk away for for a free for on a on a free transfer, or not really free transfers. He got 120 million odd when he he signed his his new contract with PSG, there, there is a sense that he's got an equivalent signing on bonus of some kind should he sign for Real Madrid. But you're right. I mean, you know, he he he, he can leave on a free. But the, the weird, there's so many curious things here. We when we interviewed him in in New York last summer, he actually said it would have been wrong to leave leave on a free. Uh, you know, on the record in an interview, he said that. So maybe, you know, it's nothing to do with. Um, his, his, his legal position, but it's just, um, it's funny how the various actors are, are changing their, their position. Guys, and also, Al Hilal bidding 300 million for a player who's probably available for half of that is also quite strange in all of this. I mean, what's what's the point of that? Well, I mean, uh, they're going to have to bid very high to get him, but and the suggestion is he would go even for a year um, I mean, it's crazy amounts of money. I mean, you can see from PSG's point of view, they've like, had him for seven years, paid him incredibly well. I suppose they, they would want to sell him, wouldn't they, this summer? So I suppose yeah. it's the fact that 
I think it happens quite often, doesn't it? A player desperate not to go because he wants to sort of cash in on a free transfer and a club wanting to sell him, that does cause problems. So I suppose it's it's this thing about clubs being unable to sell a player if they would like to. That's where this problem arises. There's a mercenary element to the whole industry, isn't it? You know, it's very hard to, to it's like very tiny violins. Who do you feel sorry for? You know, the state-owned Qatari team or the you know the billionaire football player. It's 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 the 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 football transfer industry is pretty horrible and it's got it's got more and more I guess you know grubby and, and and rapacious over over the last years and here we are in this in this in this situation with this player and that club and those poor agents stuck in the middle of it Rob you know they're they're going to be out of, they're going to be out of pocket not. <laughs> Yeah, what a saga it is. And yeah, Mbappe does have every right to leave the club and clubs will then focus on actually what is the right way to do it? How should you actually seek an exit? Players at their end of their careers will easily be moved on by uh, their clubs as Jordan Henderson would have been at Liverpool, perhaps not getting the game time and he would have um, then eventually been surplus to requirements. Um, Comes perhaps with one of the other big names in the transfer window, uh, Harry Kane, the top English Asset and his own future at Spurs. He's got a year left on his uh, Tottenham contract. Does Tottenham cash in now? Does he want to stay? Does he go? Does he see out the final year? Or are there far bigger issues for Tottenham to be grappling with? Because this week, Joe Lewis has been indicted in New York. Nominally on paper, he stopped being a person with significant overall control of Tottenham last October when shares were shifted but they are only into a family trust. So the Joe Lewis family certainly still owning Spurs. But this case that we suddenly heard about from the US attorney this week in New York, insider trading, profiteering to help friends, a really serious one. It's a fascinating indictment, actually. If you read the whole thing, um, it really is, uh, for, for example, rewarding the allegations are that he was rewarding his like the two pilots who sort of ran his private aircraft, that he's giving them tips about things that were going to be coming out that would affect share prices, and and also his girlfriend saying, you know, get buy shares now because the share prices are going to go up, and in some cases, allegedly lending them money to buy the shares. Which, um, and these shares were in a cancer drug company. It was allegedly him having advanced sight of favourable cancer drug trials that hadn't been published yet and allegedly advising the purchase of shares in the company ahead of the public release when the shares then shot up 17% in a day. Well, I mean, as I say, it is a, the indictment is amazing. Uh, it may take some time to come to court, um, but uh, I think it's going to be a, a really interesting one. And I, I presume, but it's difficult to know that the change of the the um, terms of the ownership and the establishment of the family trust being in charge took place a year ago. These alleged offences are between 2013 and 2021. So I would um, it's not beyond the bounds of possibility he knew he was under investigation and that's maybe why the, the change happened. Also, he's 86 years old, so some necessary succession planning too. Yeah, maybe, maybe. But curious timing, Ziggs, with maybe some housekeeping and knowing which direction this stuff um, is going in. But I want to ask you both the question, 
so you've got that stuff that's done on paper. I'm reading every day. We've just talked about Joe Lewis, the owner of Tottenham. Regardless of the paperwork, we see it every day has been been indicted, has been charged. Joe Lewis, the owner of Tottenham, says Harry Kane must be sold. Even afterwards, all week we've been seeing the owner of Tottenham, despite these companies' house changes and the trust and all the rest of it. Now, cast your mind back to, to um, Roman Abramovich and Chelsea. The Premier League, after he got sanctioned, banned him from being a director of of um, of a Premier League club, meaning he could never own a, a team in England again. And I, I did ask him, well, hang on, what what what's the point? Why have you why have you done that? So, well, because he's because because he's effectively persona non grata. Now, if you look at the owners and directors test, if Joe Lewis, if he is convicted of the charges he faces, he would also be a persona non grata uh, as far as the Premier League owners and directors test is concerned. Yet. It looks like Tottenham could remain in the hands of of his of his family or that trust, despite the fact that we keep saying Joe Lewis is the owner of Tottenham. How, how does that look for the Premier League? Well, above all, at no point, as far as I'm aware of, in the last many months, have Tottenham done anything to try to correct people referring to Joe Lewis as the owner? Because this week did start with some reports about supposed conversations between Joe Lewis and Daniel Levy about Harry Kane's future. Um, right. You know, as we know, organisations often send out blanket media messages. Can you? This is wrong. You referred to things wrongly. I mean, maybe that was sent out. I am not aware of anything. But you know, can imagine if we started to refer to um, the owner of Tottenham being Jeff Bezos suddenly, and isn't clearly not the owner. Someone would say so, wouldn't they? Yeah, yeah, you're, you're dead right. Suddenly, only after these charges, Rob, and again, it was um, through third parties, not on the record stuff as well. To try and correct this 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 uh, this this idea that that been wrong for a year, the public has been um, unaware of for a year or so that all these headlines referring to Joe Lewis as the owner of Tottenham have been incorrect. Only after the only after the charges are filed, only after the indictment is unsealed. Well, Joe Lewis does deny wrongdoing. His lawyer says he is a man of integrity, and they're going to fight these charges. He's saying he's not guilty of them. This case will be going on, we expect, for some time. Well, away from the world of football, it's now just under one year until the Paris Olympics. This week, marked by the IC president, Thomas Barclay, officially inviting the nations of the world to the Olympics. Um, so much of the build-up has been around participation of Russians and Belarusians at the Games. They at this stage, can compete as neutrals, it will seem, and maybe Ukraine is shifting their position to allow Ukrainians to compete against neutral uh, Russian and Belarusian athletes. Yeah, it's still a big issue. Um, and the UCI's International Cycling Union this week sent an angry letter to the British government saying that they're going to that their hardline policy on Russian athletes is it will damage their chances of hosting cycling events for years to come so it's still a sort of political issue um but there's other uh, olympic news this which i thought was really fascinating with um the guy who was the sort of seen as the kingmaker um for many years he seemed to be the power behind the throne that got thomas back elected to the IEC presidency um, and has also been very, very influential in other things. For example, getting wrestling reinstated 
after it was dropped in, in 2013. And that's um, Sheikh Ahmad from Kuwait, who now, despite the fact that he's got a criminal conviction in Switzerland, which he's fighting, um, has been an IOC member, but has finally, the IOC have taken <clears throat> some disciplinary action against him. Sheikh Ahmed linked, as you said, to Thomas Bach in that election victory in 2013. You mentioned wrestling, but also with Tokyo getting the Olympics, it was seen as a treble victory for him. He was, we were there, Ziggs, uh, in, in, in the Buenos Aires in 2013, and he was, he was the man who was fated, the man who everyone wanted to talk to around the, the IOC Congress then. Um, and, and for years, he's been um, uh, seen as, a, a, I guess, a shadowy figure in the world of sports. He, he was linked to a major bribery and corruption case in a US indictment some years ago related to bribes paid to a football official from Guam. He's a, described as an unindicted co-conspirator in that case. He was self, he self-suspended himself from the IOC uh, as a result of, of, of not only that, but that forgery case that, that you mentioned, which, which he's appealing. And the IOC had sent a letter to him and to the OCA to say, do not interfere with the OCA elections. And that's exactly what he appears to have done. He was there in Bangkok around the elections, campaigning for his brother to, to become president, another Sheikh al-Sabah. And, and that is exactly what's happened. And the IOC has taken action suspending him for 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 three years now um and um, and declaring that his brother does not recognize his brother as the oca president the irc shown here they are getting tough in an area some would often challenge on how rigorous they are around ethics yeah this is uh sheikh ahmad um now being suspended for three years the 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 uh the olympic council of asia election was a um where his brother, who's also Kuwaiti, obviously, was up against Hussein al-Musalam, the FINA president, another Kuwaiti, and it sounds like it was decided by yet another Kuwaiti um, weighing in. So um, the one thing that was for sure was that somebody from Kuwait was going to be in charge. Ziggs, there is something uh, curious here as well. Are you saying that co-conspirator number two in the US indictment, tried to prevent co-conspirator number three from being elected and succeeded because Hussein al-Musalam is um, also named in that and uh, is an unnamed co-conspirator in that in that US indictment we referenced. What a what a world of what a world of <laughs> FINA and the, the OCA is. And just this week, Hussein al-Musalam, who now is president of the renamed World Aquatics Body, has secured a new eight-year term to be president. Yeah. That's right. It's a, it's a, the, the Olympic circle keeps turning. Yes, Hussein al-Muslim was for a long time the sort of loyal attendant of Sheikh Ahmad. Um, I think things have changed slightly in recent years. Since he became the FINA president, he's sort of shifted away from that. Um, and I think that the, this, the sign that he was running against his brother was the, the final sort of signal that actually they, they've sort of parted parted or gone separate ways at least both sheikh ahmed and hussein al-muslim would deny wrongdoing on world aquatics something very intriguing at their meeting in fukushima japan at the world championships they're going to move their headquarters world aquatics the new name for fina they're leaving switzerland and they're going to hungary 
Not just that, the Hungarian government has given them a 15-year rent-free deal to move the headquarters there, and they've been given legal protection. So they will have immunity for all officials and activities and documentation, as well as tax benefits provided by the Hungarian government. Why are they so keen for World Aquatics to be based there? Well, the the Hungarian president um, has been using sport as a major platform um, over a number of years, whether it's football and now you see there is swimming. But the thing this reminds me of, guys, is what um, the South American football body, Comnibal, the arrangement it had with Paraguay for, for many years, up until the, the, the uh, FIFA scandal of 2015, which many people, I suppose, quite rightly say was a South American scandal, um, the, the, the embezzlement, corruption charges, decades of of, of bribe paying related to TV rights, mainly around these South American officials. They got similar immunity. They pretty much built a small country within within um, within Paraguay and in a suburb called Luque. Um, and there was a plaque at the headquarters there of all the people, a stone with the names of all the people who were there when it was when when they built this um, annex, this hotel. And if you look at the, that plaque now, I think all but one of those men were named in the U.S. indictment for corruption. <laughs> Let's hope for swimming's sake um, that a similar fate doesn't befall them. Because neither Sheikh Ahmed or Hussein al-Muslim have actually been indicted in these states. No. Just um, they are the co-conspirators in an indictment, but they've not been charged. The um, But just to go back to the, the, the moving of the headquarters, I mean, you can, you know why wouldn't you do it if you're being given rent-free headquarters and and tax breaks and financial immunity? I mean, I just wonder if this is going to be the first in in a long line of people deciding or sports governing bodies, international organisations and federations deciding Switzerland is no longer the place to be and there'll be a, a drift to Hungary. Well, certainly when it comes to organisations like FIFA, even sometimes the IOC as well, uh, they're based in Switzerland, but certainly since the pandemic, they found reasons for media not to be allowed into their HQ, fewer events there, not in-person press conferences, which means it's harder to go and actually ask questions of them. Uh, as for World Aquatics, they do say, you know, our Muslim told delegates, you don't have to worry about the finances now because they won't have to spend any money on the headquarters. But you know, these are headquarters that it's important for media to be able to come into to ask the questions. And while we might focus so much on, say, FIFA on this pod, it's those other sports governing bodies that don't get the same level of scrutiny where it is required, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, it's it's years and years since I've been to Zurich um, for a FIFA event because they haven't really had any there. It's... Um, you used to, you know, when Blatter was in charge, used to go all the time, you know, probably several times a year. Um, it's, uh, yeah, I've not been since 2016. Uh, September 2016 to interview uh, one Johnny Infantino, and the time before that was July 2015. And uh, I think it was when we were all inside for the press conference with Seth Blatter, where a certain person uh, threw some money over him. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. that was a, a memorable a memorable day a memorable press conference to end on as our great memories but that about brings an end to this week's episode of sport unlocked as ever 
you can always message us at Sport Unlocked on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. And we did have one listener get in contact with us in the last week, making a suggestion. And that was that we perhaps start using the term Petro Football to describe some of the wealth coming into the game from the Mideast. Yeah, I thought that was a good term, actually. You know, Qatar, Saudi Arabia, UAE. It's all about Petro Football. So I'm going to start using that. Yeah, so any feedback well received. Tarek, good to hear from you out in Australia again. Martin, and thank you everyone for listening to. For now, goodbye. Goodbye.